here we are. We're here. We're here from the Data Protection <laughs> Breakfast Club. We've got Judy Estes, who is uh, GC of Strategic Services and a whole bunch of other things at MasterCard. Um, MasterCard bought Session M. Judy was the attorney running the team uh, of the group that bought Session M data and services at MasterCard. And uh, I just, she's awesome. I learned so much from her in a short period of time and great leader. She's led a bunch of different parts of, of the legal organization at MasterCard and uh, she's awesome. Yeah, and she's vintage in some ways, man. Like been at one place a long time. I yeah. feel like, I, I mean, just look at me and you, we kind of bounce around a little bit and like lots of people, I think, do that quite a bit. So I think, you know, there's something to be said about being at a place long enough to kind of like um, absorb and be part of the DNA, the inner workings of the company's culture. He was there before it went public. And I think that's, that, you know, that's an interesting situation, right? You always, I don't think people think of MasterCard anymore at all. As, as a private company. company. <laughs> no, they don't. That makes sense in my brain. It doesn't register for some reason. Yeah, I don't get it. Yeah. And so she's right that she's right when she says that a lot of things changed after that and um and she's had a really interesting experience there and um it's like to talk to her about it yeah me too man one of the things i like about massacre itself is like and maybe th this is anecdotal so i i could be totally wrong but i remember growing up mastercard and not in a predatory way but in a in a good way was the credit card that i would see in the hands of people in my community my community being like a lower working class, you know, poverty edge neighborhood, a lot of Latino Americans, a uh, lot of African Americans. Um, you know, if we had credit cards or debit cards, and again, this goes back to the 90s, so who knows? But just my memory is very much a watch, like my parents' credit card being a MasterCard and them being very like diligent about like making the payment and these kind of things. Um, and, and same thing goes for other members of my family and friends and stuff. This was the card that I saw. I didn't see Platinum Amexes a lot in my uh, neighborhood. You get, that's my point, right? I mean, I, obviously you're catering to different crowds, but I love the fact that MasterCard saw fit to extend credit to communities that banks that, that are underbanked. So one, th one thing that I got an opportunity to see is how inclusive that company is. You see what I mean? It's incredible. They, they, they don't just say their values that this is a company that actually has values and, yeah. and, and like shows them off and, and does things, you know, through action. When I was, one of the times I was there visiting with them, they had their global legal town hall. And I got to see like the GC was talking about like pr programs and things that the company and legal has supported that the company has done in, um, communities in other countries, maybe that don't have water. Like, so it's, they're actually like out there taking action and doing things that are actively helping people that don't have things. And that, that's one thing that they're doing, but I think also being inclusive is a value of theirs. And they talk about it a lot and they just, they mean it. Yeah. When I worked at Oracle, I think you're right about that, by the way, and based on just my personal experience, but um, just my image of the company. When I worked at Oracle, I handled a lot of the, you know, my commercial legal capacity, a lot of like the data licensing relationships between Oracle and the big banks. So including the big credit card processors. So think Amex, uh, Visa, Visa and MasterCard and Discover. Um, and so those negotiations were always super interesting. 
and I had great relationships with the folks at Visa and Amex. I've built friendships with some of the folks at MasterCard. I won't throw their names out here because we might have them as guests and maybe they don't want to talk about the work we did, but like, um, like friendships, like I have actual like Instagram friends, not just LinkedIn buddies. And we follow up on each other and we text that I met in the course of managing those relationships. And, the, and at Salesforce too, like the, one of our dear partners when I was at Salesforce um, that we worked closely with like on collaborative marketing things uh, between the two companies was MasterCard. And it's just like a pleasant, interesting conversation every time. Super diverse people on the other side. Yep. Um, a lot of women in charge, which I thought was incredible. And, uh, and just an overall positive experience. I had the exact same story. MasterCard was a customer of DataZoo. One of the founders and myself took a train and drove to MasterCard headquarters to finish off negotiating the deal. Um, Cause you know, important customer for of us. Course. And, um, and I'm still friendly with that attorney. She doesn't work there anymore, <laughs> but you know, we, we, we're a much smaller company and they were willing to have us to their headquarters, you know, go through the negotiation with us. It was a very human back and forth. No, like we didn't agree on everything, but you never do. And, uh, and they just, they don't, they didn't, again, it, that's an inclusive experience. That's not like, that can be very, very not the case with some companies. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Specifically other banks. <laughs> other, anybody. I've seen yeah. that a lot. Yeah. 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 Well, I see the opposite time. of that, unfortunately. So Judy's a, a good, a good representation of somebody that um, she stayed there because, it, because of all these things. Yeah. Uh, and so. Here it is. There it goes. There it is. There it is. I'm going to change my shirt. All right, go change your shirt. I have a, not hard, but I got to stop early on the next one after the half, if I can. So we probably want to move quickly. I, I can stay later than the half, but I got to go at least make an appearance on a call that ends at 11. Just putting you that just, in. You just, you just end it when you're ready to end it, you know? And just say, hey, you know, you naturally segue and we'll end. If it's a little shorter, that's okay by me. I'm going to go put on my bathing suit. <laughs> All right. Here we are. Here, Here. we are. Data Protection Breakfast Club with Judy Estes, who is EVP, General Counsel Services and Strategic Growth at MasterCard. I, I got it all? Yes. All right. <laughs> we're here. Uh, we're here. We made it. We had a false start one time and now we're here um thanks for thanks for talking to us um i met judy when mastercard bought session m um in 2019 and um and just learned a ton even in a short period of time so i'm really psyched to have you here and uh you chose every breath you take which is a song by the police and tell us why tell us why you like that song you said it's your favorite song yeah, I think it's more the melody, the, the beat, it's sort of somber and, uh, you know, it kind of puts you sort of in this thinking mode, um, sort of uh, time to reflect when you listen to the, sh to the music. So it's really more about that than anything else. But it's, uh, I'll tell you a funny story, though. Um, for one of like one of our team events, I had to come up with two random facts about yourself, fun facts and blah, blah, blah. And I don't really have a lot of fun facts. So... I came up with, and they asked me for the favorite song, so this was the favorite song. And one of the fun facts that I would manage to come up with was how after within a day, within a 24-hour period of being married to my husband, I actually tried to kill him. 
and <laughs> and the way I almost tried to kill him was drowning him. So somebody said it's very ironic that, uh, or maybe fitting that you know your song is every breath you take and yeah. you're trying to drown the man. I think I'm gonna stop everybody right here. What is the statute of limitations on attempted murder, Andy? He's alive. We share a mortgage and everything. Attempted <laughs> murder. Uh... Clearly, though. Clearly, though. Fun facts. Fun facts. Yeah, this is. A I'll good say, fun drowning him was intentional, <laughs> but it was also intentional, you know, to make sure he lives. So it was a test. It was a test. <laughs> I guess he passed. He stayed. Um, he did. Those are the ones I'm worried about. I have a question. I have a question for you, Judy, that I've been thinking about for a while that I wanted to kick this off with because um, I think it's going to be really, it, it's going to be an interesting one. So <clears throat> I want to ask you like a sort of a variation. The first question is what sucks about law firms? And then, <laughs> and then what sucks about large law firms? Yeah. I've only been in a large law firm. Um, I think what sucks, I mean, at least at the time that I was there, um, was that they, were, they weren't as concerned about really giving you the proper training in the way you needed to be trained. And they kind of threw you into everything. It was so much more of a sink or swim kind of atmosphere. And I think that sucks. I think though the the experience that I got out of it um, was invaluable though because I swam right um, just like my husband did. <laughs> <laughs> I, I swam, but it wasn't a it wasn't a uh, a pleasant experience. Like I wouldn't wish that on people. And I think a lot of the law firms, at least back then when I was coming up, was very much like that. They were very much a powerhouse for revenue generating and billables and things like that, that I don't think they took enough of a proper time to be able to train you up the way you needed to be trained. And you sort of learn kind of on the streets, you know, back then. I think um, law firms these days, um, first, I don't think they make associates like they used to. Uh, I think they, they, we were tougher back then, at least that's the way I recall it. Um, but I think, uh, you know, one of the things as now being in-house and sort of being on the receiving end of those services, I think they're a little bit too theoretical still, you know, we're still very much a lawyer's lawyer kind of, uh, you know, operations. And I think what they're missing is sort of that in-house speak and thought process uh, that would be very helpful and that would make them very effective. And I think people who may sort of have experience in-house and have gone back to law firm actually brings a different kind of element into the discussions and the analysis. I would uh, sort of say that, I don't know about the, the, the smaller law firms. I haven't really experienced them. I was going um, to say, it's interesting. Like you can find maybe a little bit of the more practicality, maybe if you go with a medium, a mid-sized law firm, or, or even like someone, for instance, that was at a big firm doing labor and employment law and then has their own their own firm and, and then does those things. But you have, there's major trade-offs because the visibility, for instance, Alice works with, <clears throat> for global compliance issues, Alice works with Latham and Watkins. Like, and there needs to be, that, that has to happen. You know, in yeah. my view, that has to happen. They have to, like, if we're talking to customers or we're talking to investors or things like they have to feel that there's, that there's, you know, 
service providers backing us that have given us, you know, advice on issues of certain issues that require that visibility. So it's a tricky balance, I think. Right. No, I agree with that. I agree. And then maybe you can vary it based on what you're doing, right? In some litigation, we do look for which firms are representing, you know, the case and uh, that brings a lot of, you know, either credibility or what, you know, what have you, you know, and unfortunately, because I have worked with smaller firms, uh, mid-sized firms, minority-owned firm, law firms, which tend to not be so big, and they're excellent. Their services are excellent. Their advice is excellent. It's just that they don't carry that pedigree that already comes with that name. I hate, like, the idea that, like, firm branding drives business. I just don't like yeah. that. I, yeah. I know why it happens, and I know that, like, it's hard to justify to the board, you know, hiring a small firm when you're a Fortune 100 for your antitrust case. Like, I understand why. And I also understand why sometimes having a lot of associates matters, like big M&A deal, you have two yeah. weeks to crunch it out, whatever. Like, I get some of the reasoning, but the general idea of, like, okay, we've hit a certain revenue threshold. Now we've got to hire all these fancy law firms. Like, that automatic change I, I don't understand. Like, it just makes no sense to me. Like, I don't see, especially on, like, privacy matters. Like, I want the smartest people. You don't need 50 people, you know? Like, you need four or five really good ones. And that's for a huge company, right? Like, so little companies definitely don't need to pay $1,000 an hour right. so that some law firm can have an ivory tower in New York City. Like, I just don't see what the point of that is. Yeah. And but I we still think- all do it, me included. Like, I'm guilty of <laughs> Yeah, on that point, I think it's very important to build those relationships. Like, let's say you did build it because they were at a law, big law firm and you build very solid relationships with these lawyers. And as they're moving on, I mean, typically we move with them, right? Because they have all of our history. It's easier for us to stay with them. And if they happen to be at a mid-sized firm or a smaller law firm, I would, I would think because you're following them throughout their career and you trusted their advice and their work that you would continue to follow them no matter which firm they may be. You know, part of um, as long as they pass our vendor management and all of that stuff. But you know, I, I think that's it, it. Sort of goes to show you the the importance of building that relationship with these lawyers um, and making sure that that you know wherever they go, you know that. And I'm sure they wouldn't put you in a position where they couldn't support you in the way they have been right in the past. So, um, so I think that's important. The other wacky part of it, to, to your point about following the lawyer, right? Of course, right? You build a relationship. You've got the trust. They know the business. They know your working stuff. So lawyer moves from firm A to firm B. Nothing else changes. All of a sudden, the rate is three hundred dollars an hour more. Like what in the hell just happened? You know. I, you know like, and, and That's so, like my hairdresser. Uh, like, I wanted on to the same exact same haircut. Yeah, why is it higher? This makes no sense. Yeah. And uh, anyway. That's true. Yeah, we have to find a make sure wherever they're going, whatever home they find, that it has to match with whatever we're used to as well. Exactly. We used a firm um, at DataZoo for our uh, IP and patent work, and we were using this firm, and then we we changed over to another firm, and I I picked this really small firm in Boston because they had a couple people that had done a bunch of patents for Google in the past that were very similar to the ad tech style patents we were going to do, but this was a very small law firm. And I had lunch with the founder partner in New York City once, and he was describing the story of how he created the firm. They were all, um, they were all like in, first they were uh, in-house litigators at JP Morgan. And they were like, there was like four or five of them. And then they said, we're going to go start our own firm. And they, they had no idea 
what would happen and you know they sort of <clears throat> prepared their families for like a period of of quiet or something and and they left and and um jp forgan was like just as you said judy they were like you know you're gonna keep doing this work for us and so then they they like left jp morgan and then they were like we're in an active litigation you can use our office so they came back to their old offices and they were actually <laughs> in the old offices but 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 they were making all the money themselves and then they, yeah. they of course grew and they kept they kept that work and you know they had a patent partner that had done a bunch of work for cisco and he kept that work and so it's interesting to see how like the, i think that what you described is is how a lot of these small and mid-sized firms like can do it at all they they have trust and they've established a relationship whereas cisco will be like all right well we want to keep working with you you're a good attorney so right. I think that happens are we trying to start something with the three of us <laughs> is that what this is about <laughs> definitely no <laughs> i don't ever want to go i cannot see that feature for myself at all i'm with you <laughs> And I've been at MasterCard for over almost 16 years now for a reason, so. <laughs> I understand. Like, I, yeah, I, I am, like, I, I know that it's, like, fashionable to be entrepreneurial and all that stuff, but, like, I'd rather spend more time thinking about things. Like, I'm a little bit more theoretical. I'm, I just, um, it's not for me. It's not for me. Speaking of MasterCard for 67,000 years, when we scheduled this, I started thinking about my first credit card. Oh, okay. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so my first credit card ever was actually a Discover card. Mm. But I never used it because nobody accepted it anywhere. And this was like in 1990. <laughs> hey, shout out to Discover card. But like, um, but I couldn't figure out like how to use that thing. So I applied to two more cards. An Amex Blue, right? Like, mm -hmm. I remember, remember those. Remember those, all right? And a MasterCard from some bank that definitely didn't make it past 2008 like i don't even know what bank it was right like you know bank x of the mountains like some random bank right and so i get this mastercard and it's this like gray ugly credit card and my credit limit was 250 dollars. and i was like i'm rich okay yeah. so, <laughs> like I'm, I'm gonna use this thing. my interest rate was like i, I don't know but i i'm sure it wasn't four percent like it was something outrageous right and so i worked at best buy at the time, this is my first credit card. And what did I do with my little $250? I maxed the credit card out. One person. <laughs> and I bought one 4X CD writer. Like, this is what I bought so that I could do like bootleg CDs and pay myself back for this, for this credit card. I mean, for the CD writer. And I have to say, I paid myself back very quickly. <laughs> I do have to say, but you know, that was during the era, I mean, it's 99. So like everybody was, you know, burning music CDs and doing like mixtapes and stuff like that. And so I made a bunch of mixtapes, sold them on campus and like everything was good. What a, um, but what that's a, my MasterCard story. First ever swipe, MasterCard. What a gutsy story, you know? I know. <laughs> I was very brave. I was very brave. Uh, well, so uh, Judy, will you tell us, tell us a little bit about the journey at MasterCard? Because it is one of the cool things about the company is that you can be a lawyer, you can be, you know, in another area of the business. And one of the really cool things about MasterCard is that they encourage you to do a bunch of different stuff so that you can move around MasterCard. I always thought that was really cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, I was at a law firm for five and a half years. I was pretty much burnt out, you know, um, well, it's, you know, based on the story I told you, a brief story I told you about it. But 
I was looking for some place to kind of like settle down and just slow down and because um, I was so burnt out. Uh, I joined MasterCard before we went public. Um, so it was kind of like that. I mean, we had back then we had a sort of this country club feel, you know, culture to things. I mean, things were due two weeks from today kind of thing. And um, I knew that would be short lived for me because I, that's not part of my personality. Um, so when Ajay came and became our CEO and we went public and all that, um, we were very much different than we were when I first joined. Thank goodness, too. So there are a lot of changes. I, I was I'm a transactional lawyer by trade, so I did a lot of uh, you know revenue generating deals, you know sales facing. Then I I, I did um, then I did a bit of uh, M and A for about two and a half years. You know we just went public. We we're sitting on a heap of cash. We were trying to invest it somewhere, so we were very active in our M and A practice. Except we didn't really have a discipline around it. So because it was somewhat relatively a new thing that we were doing. You know, not only was the business coming up with practices and policies that would really help us, you know, be more efficient in doing these things, but the legal team also had to sort of get up there too. So I was on that journey. I was one of the first sort of like legitimate M&A team that came on um, and we were developing that. I had a very small team. There were like two and a half people, including myself, but it was like the first time I was- Wait, 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 wait. time out. <laughs> <Yeah. Yeah>. Who's <laughs> happy? <laughs> A very short person. No, no, the half was she, uh, he was splitting his time between two groups. Uh, but I didn't care. I was like treating him as my full member. And, uh, you know, we do what we could. Then I was asked to lead uh, uh, the US market, which was our largest uh, market at the time. Um, doing a lot more of the, the brand deals, you know, the, uh, getting the banks to issue MasterCard cards. So, and that's bread and butter. MasterCard. But I sort of went on through that path, doing that uh, for a while. And then, you know, about now, I guess almost six years ago, I was asked to then lead the now DNS uh, legal team, which is the data and services legal team. Um, and did that until about earlier this year, or sorry, last year, May around last year, um, uh, I got promoted uh, to uh, and, and got other parts of, of, of MasterCard. So generally speaking, I have all of services services at MasterCard is made up of data and services, as well as the, um, the CNI, which is cyber and intelligence uh, uh, business group. And then, uh, and then the marketing team, the legal team, as well as our, what we call the MasterCard strategic growth, which is really uh, more of a government uh, uh, vertical for us and financial inclusion and all those efforts. So I got that. So um, I think each step of the way, you know, there was always something that I added to my toolkit, which was great. You know, if I didn't manage people, you know, I, I ended up managing and it was a small group, like two and a half or one and a half other people. Then I got, you know, the next bump up was managing like five people or, and um, at some point I started to uh, attend like executive level, you know, management teams um, because they saw legal as <clears throat> part of that group. So I'm usually the only lawyer in the, on the, uh, in the meetings on the team. Um, but I always felt like MasterCard did foster this, this atmosphere where it didn't matter what role you played, that you always had a voice at the table. And they were very receptive to that. So I think it kind of grew. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's a mindset that I think it's easy to explain, but it's very hard to execute and it's hard to adapt when, uh, when you're actually coming up in your career. I was very fortunate to have very good mentors. I didn't have a lot, but the ones that I did have were very, very good. 
um, to sort of impart that wisdom on me. So yeah, I think MasterCard really does, you know, really promote you doing different things. It's almost a like a semi-requirement. It's not even just, hey, we encourage you to do it. If you want to do it, go ahead. It's like, hey, what have you done? Let's see what you've done to see if you're qualified for this next question. It's actually very different than my experience um, at TD Ameritrade where it was a bigger in-house legal team. Every like it was very siloed. You know, um, yeah. do your thing. You do your thing. You know, you 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 had to talk a lot, but it just wasn't a lot of like. And and I was curious, like, for instance, when you are moving over and doing M and A, you know, at at Mastercard in like in a nascent team and growing that, I'm I'm imagining that you were tapped for a strategy there as well. That yeah, not just doing the the deal, right? Right. 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 And then that's the thing is, like, you know, we're obviously getting into areas we don't we're not normally in. Um, and you have to understand sort of across MasterCard what 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 we're doing and how this is going to sort of get you there or change, change, you know, where you where you're coming from and, and figure out if it's actually going to do that. And so um, <clears throat> you're expected to contribute that kind of thinking, um, um, not even just in m and but in everything, but especially in m and Yeah. Was, or was Oracle like that, Pedro? Salesforce? Um, I mean, obviously, Oracle and Salesforce are super acquisitive companies. Um, you know, I think the strategy on M&A is very tight-knit and held by a very small group of corporate development folks into which, like, M&A legal feeds. But, like, from where I sat, um, we would be informed of the... Like, we would be disclosed when deals were, let, let me say it, like when the decision had been made to pursue a deal, like very rarely would we be engaged when it was like exploration phase, if that makes sense. Um, that doesn't mean every deal we got disclosed on when it happened, but, uh, or even got to intent stage. But I can't recall in all the M&A work I did at both those companies ever being disclosed on, you know, in the like, idea phase or the pitch phase of, of a deal just don't remember maybe but i don't think so how's that how's that at mastercard is there more participation from legal earlier in that process so i think it's very similar to what pedro just described you do have that coordinate corporate development team that keeps a lot of things in lockdown especially because we're on you know under confidentiality obligations for those deals then you got the core m a team uh, internal M&A team that has all the pipeline of all of the potential M&A you know, um, uh, activities and the ones that are very active and things like that. I think um, when, when until I became at a certain level where I was now part of executive, you know, management teams, I would say that I didn't have access to those, but I was fortunate to you know, be part of the M&A legal team where I did have access to the entire pipeline before that. So I feel like I had a little bit more visibility than probably a lot of the, you know, uh, people at MasterCard. But um, even at the, even now, if let's say DNS business group is uh, looking to acquire something, it's not like we know about it the first instance, it becomes an idea, right? Um, it, we know about it as it's been sort of cultured into, you know, in, into some other bigger idea that we think now can have legs. Um, so I don't know it from the way get-go, um, and I think given that I have very good relationship with the person who actually does lead the M&A legal team right now, he is very uh, uh, communicative of some of the things that uh, 
uh, that's going on in, in, the, in that world and make sure that I can make sure to me in at the appropriate time. So I, I get a little bit more information I can give in where I am, but uh, I would say for the most part, it does follow what Pedro um, described because I think it's just the nature of the deals. When do you guys engage your privacy and security legal people? From the beginning. Like okay. once we start to, uh, definitely when we have uh, the go ahead to do the diligence for sure. But even before then, when we're talking about, should we get this company? Should we go for it? Should we not go for it? They are all in there. So, so we have a core emanating that does the actual deals. And then we have a designated representative from privacy, you know, from compliance even like, or IT where they get brought in um, as those issues come up um, during those deals, but it's very early on. I can't remember, Andy, I'm sure, I know you've been on the, the target side of things. Um, I don't know if I've ever heard of MasterCard being a target for an acquisition. I don't know. Um, doubt it, right? But but I don't I don't know. Uh, it's I've been on the target side way back in the days too. Like it's different, right? Like it's more of a scramble. I don't know. At least for me, Andy. Like first of all, we didn't have like M and A departments and like you know all these like corporate development infrastructures and things. Like it was just like, hey, we're getting a call from whoever and they want to talk to us. Like and then everybody like. Bob and sales is scrambling, like, you know, everyone's scrambling to figure out how to talk to the, to the potential acquirer. Uh, it, well, it was, how was your experience on the, on the target side, Andy? It's interesting. Like on the buy side, when I was much younger in my career, so on the buy side, it was like, go do the diligence dirty work, you know, like <laughs> look at all these contracts, you know, and, 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 but actually that ended up really benefiting me because we did buy a pretty big company and I did, because I was the diligence person, on the commercial side of that deal, I ended up spending all this time with them and became their their right hand lawyer. So like over <clears throat> over time, I was able, and that team actually ended up taking over the platform and becoming the innovation leading team on the the whole platform TD Ameritrade. So I ended up with some really awesome internal relationships by kind of like just by doing that little project, you know, in the beginning. So like on the buy side. Uh, my experience was was you know totally different, but but because I was so junior, but equally interesting in that sense. But then on target side, it's totally different. I mean, it's just especially when the acquirer is Mastercard. <laughs> well, they're, 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 it's interesting. I want to know about that, Andy. I want to know uh, about that. I'll get I'll get there. <laughs> it's, it's interesting, like the where I was in my career when that acquisition happened versus when there was corp dev activity happening, for instance, at DataZoo, when, when I joined DataZoo as the only lawyer, and there was, there was you know, constant activity about who's gonna buy the company or who's gonna be our, you know, are we gonna bring in a new investor to the table, like things like that. <clears throat> and so over time, it, like when I joined DataZoo, again, I was the only lawyer, but I was like, it was very much like, you know, here, do everything and 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 but not yet sort of here be in the strategic conversation about finance and about like our future as a company that came later in my time there it, had, it took a few years to get to the point where that that felt like a thing that the the lawyer should be in that room but then then when i got to session m it was very different because i was kind of in that the whole time and so i i had visibility into not just mastercard into like the process that we were going through at that time well before any of this stuff 
happened. And so I got a chance to kind of see all of the different potential possibilities that, that were happening for us and, you know, got, got to see it play out, which was very different. And you know, obviously I wasn't the one like pulling the trigger and making the decision, but like, it was interesting. And I was able to kind of weigh in on like, yeah, this is a good fit for us. Um, and this is a good fit for our people. And this is a good fit for our technology. And I don't know if I told you all this, Judy or, or Pedro, maybe I did, or maybe I didn't. When I joined Session M, three months in, we had a term sheet to sell the business. And I was like, this is crazy. I just, like, I just got here, you know, and, and, and let's just say it was not a company like MasterCard. It was a company that I did not want to work for. Like I had negative 20% interest in working for that company. So it was going to be a matter of, okay, if this thing happens, like I'm, I'm definitely leaving and I'm definitely figuring out like what's next for my career, but luckily it didn't happen. And, and over those, those next few years, it was a really awesome opportunity to see that stuff play out. So when you're on the target side and you're a smaller company, um, it can be, it can be really cool. You're just in more conversations. Um, but I also, I also see the the interesting stuff that, that y'all are talking about on on the the to be able to have that strategic element for a lawyer on the kind of M and A side, the business side is really when you're dealing with bigger companies. You know, it's it's interesting. So it sounds like Andy obviously was a surprise to you when you had to look at a term sheet, you know, for a potential sell. Um, did, did, did the, uh, was it a sort of common knowledge at Session M that it was sort of up for, you know, up in the market to be in, acquired or? Three months in or, or later? Later. Later. Uh, well, I think, so it wasn't common knowledge around the company. I think there was a group of us that were aware that we, that we either needed to raise a large chunk of money to like to put more gas in the tank on product and and on certain aspects of development like we hadn't built out any sort of infrastructure for pci for instance and we knew like if we're gonna if we're gonna keep serving the enterprise and we're gonna keep getting these airlines and like, like customers that have really high expectations we're gonna have to put more fuel in this tank in, in order to make it go and that could either be just cash you know in in terms of cash raise um, with with either one of our existing investors or another or or that could have been well let's sell the business to the right you know the right owner to drive the, the business forward and i think we gave our bankers a very difficult scenario which the, the bankers often get which is like <laughs> help me do a strategic raise or or if opportunistically a really good partner comes to buy the business then we'll entertain that so only a few of us knew that that was a possibility i think all a broader swath knew that we needed to put money into the business to to serve all those big customers i think because I think there are some sensitivities, like, you know, because we, APT, you know, was our other acquisition, um, and they were preparing to go public uh, when we bought them. So there, there aren't that many people within the organization they thought that knew about the acquisition. And us doing diligence on the company was like very sensitive, right? Because we couldn't, we had to keep that very close. Um, make sure people didn't know about it. So it was hard to do a lot of the interviews and you know figuring things out. Of course, the key players we knew about and knew about it, so we were able to talk to them. 
but sometimes we need to go a little bit, you know, wider than that. Um, so that was very sensitive. We had an interesting conversation, Judy, with Mark Kahn, who's the general counsel of Segment, which was just bought by Twilio um, mm -hmm. last year. And he was describing kind of what, what, what you described, which is you, you had to like slowly expand the circle of people that know about what's going on because it's a huge distraction from their day job if, if, you, if you aren't like careful about who you're, who you're reading into a deal. And I think that's the same thing at a big company too. Like you don't wanna pull someone off of something really important that they're doing because it is distracting, you know, right. it's, a, it's a, a lot of work and it's also distracting on the personal front it's like, what's going to happen to me? Yeah, no, that's 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 always part. Right. When did you know? When did you know that data and privacy were going to be something that you had to care about? You know, I know you you take pains to tell me about. You know, you're not a privacy lawyer, and Mastercard has an amazing <laughs> amazing group of privacy attorneys and privacy security uh, and all that. So, when did you know, like, as a GC, like this is something I'm going to need to know a little bit about? Yeah. So I would say, I think it was always important, you know, I mean, maybe, so I joined uh, in 05, um, and I would say maybe around 06, 07, we started to realize we don't really have a legitimate data privacy practice here. So I think the company I've known for a long time, I say me personally, because of what I was doing at MasterCard, I didn't really pay a whole lot of attention. All I needed to know was generally, what the heck is it? Gliba. Let's just, let's just talk about Gliba, you know? And we had a provision or two in the contracts that we needed to make sure that we kind of knew our way around, but it wasn't anything like, obviously, what it is today. I think it's, I started to really appreciate the importance and the intricacies and the complexity and sort of like this almost even excitement around what it is. Uh, or what it should be, um, you know, when I first joined uh, the data and services, uh, you know, when I came on to lead the legal team there, so which is about almost six years ago now. And because because data and services is so heavy, um, we're the biggest data users of mass, you know, at MasterCard, a lot of the data principles and restrictions and things like that affect this business the most. So, um, that's why I think we were actually one of the first legal group that actually had the data privacy lawyers dual reporting to me because we needed to be very much that much aligned. Um, and he's part of, as you know, Andy is part of my leadership team and I treat him like he's fully in my team for all that reason. And so I think that's when I started to realize it. And then, you know, that's when we were talking a lot more about big data. Everything was going digital and everything just exponentially got bigger and more important. Um, and then, of course, and the regulation come to sort of make sure that we're uh, on the right path with all this usage of data. So that sort of complicates everything. So I think I would say about six years ago, I personally started to realize how important it is. I was in the last few years, which kind of really grew a lot in every aspect. How about, so one of the things I think about when I think about like payment systems and credit card companies is like crypto and like how cryptocurrency has this kind of uh there's this mystique about crystal currency cryptocurrency and like anonymity and i feel like that's at odds with like our current financial system particularly credit card transactions which are used like by law enforcement and by every by marketers that they're used by everyone who wants to know something about you any ideas like big picture not mastercard specific but like super zoom out like 
how like traditional credit card banks can kind of adjust to the pressure coming from other payment systems that are more anonymous, faster, cheaper, um, and less centralized? Yeah, I mean, I think one of our, you know, biggest challenges when we think about those kinds of currency is, you know, being able to identify who you are, right? How do you, how do you even comply with law if you can't trace it back to who's sending what? So I think banks being such heavily regulated entities, I don't know how they can get, actually get very comfortable with the idea of not knowing who's sending what money, you know, or how much money into whom. Right. So I, I think from a MasterCard perspective or a credit card company or a network perspective, we don't know who you are anyway. So it, it, it matters a little less to us. But I think, you know, for us to be able to provide that infrastructure to our customers, which includes banks, I mean, it's, you know, we have to obviously look into those options. But I mean, the law says you have to know who they are. So I don't know how you could get past that i mean that's my the law doesn't say that you have to turn that over to marketers right like this is a free choice that credit card payment payment processing companies in general decide to do right and i think cryptocurrency by its nature kind of makes incredibly difficult because it's not centralized and because you really don't know who you know who is who is doing what and so like the idea of marketing my payment information and look i work at the world's i mean i work at facebook so like i'm not like oblivious to the needs of marketers but like the idea of my transactional info being used to create like behavioral profiles about me for some reason feels to me intuitively like more sensitive on the threshold of like all the data points that get used right like if healthcare data is like the most sensitive to me like financial is like not too far behind, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say from a marketing standpoint, I mean, we, we've always had a very probably higher than a lot of other companies that may have access to a lot of data, you know, had a very high standard for making sure that we don't know, we don't, we're not tracking any individual. So, you know, if we, and we're using our algorithm, we're using our, you know, technology to sort of find the, find trends propensities, um, you know, what is what is the, the, the profile, right, of that zip code, for example, based on what the data we're seeing, but we don't know that it's you, Pedro, right? But I, see. I think, you know, those things, you know, if from a marketing standpoint, uh, being anonymous is, is, is fine with us because that's how we've been operating. So do we have enough data points, you know, at times if you're mixing things up a little bit and you realize, hey, you know what, our algorithm or technology is, 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 is very sophisticated and we can actually identify, we have a pretty certainty that it might be you. Yeah, I think so, but we have some safeguards around that where we're not allowed to do certain things with our data. We have to have a certain class set in that data when we're using it and things like that. So we do have some safeguards to make sure that we don't know who you are. That makes sense. And then, and then like one last, like just nerd out question because these are, I love having someone uh, like in your role to talk to about this. Another phenomenon that is recent, the last couple of years, that I don't totally understand, and maybe you can help me understand, is the proliferation of like, there's a lot of them, like Apple Pay, Google Pay, like Visa has its own like weird pay thing, Shop Pay from Shopify, like all of these kind of like, they're like wallet slash payment. It's more than a wallet, right? Like it's a way to make transactions. You still have to add your credit card number to all of these, right? Like, so the credit cards obviously still play a role. It, to me as a consumer, it's like, why is this here? 
Like, I don't understand. Like, I have this relationship with my credit card. I've been making payments with my credit card for a thousand years. Like, why is Apple Pay a thing? Like, why is Google? Like, let me say it a different way. I don't understand the value add besides a little convenience on my device, but there's no reason why that can't happen just directly with MasterCard or whatever. So, like, why do these things exist and why are they sort of thriving? Because I don't know the answer. So I don't know if your specific question is, is why do you even need these digital wallets? Correct. Or, okay. Why do I need this thing? Well, I'm, I'm not sure I understand why. Yeah, there were studies that were done. I mean, MasterCard has been looking into this, this use case for years, for a very, very long time. Especially when I was in the M when I was doing MA for MasterCard, we were looking at it back then too. Um, you know, there was a lot of studies that said that people would go back home for their cell phones more than they would go back home for their wallets. <laughs> so wow. it was like a lot of convenience factor. And, and, and as the phones, you know, become smarter and more powerful and, you know, they have that thing where they say, you know, the phones back how many years ago has a power, more powerful control uh, uh, chip, a computer chip than what flew the Apollo. Right. So, I mean, like as it's getting much more powerful in what it can do, there's just so many, uh, you know, uh, limitless amount of things you can do on the phone that that's going to be part of you and part of your life even more and more. So we wanted to be part of that. So I think there is a need. I'm not saying it's for everybody. I actually personally use my phone more than I hate taking out my credit card. I hate it. It's just another thing I have to dig into my purse to get. You know, um, and then it's, it, especially this day and age, I got to like sanitize everything that goes back into my bag. It's like my phone is there. You have it. Maybe you have your shopping list there. Maybe you have that, whatever. Like if I go to Whole Foods, uh, I'm an Amazon Prime member. So I have to get my app out. I get the discount. I already have the phone out. So let me pay for, you know, my groceries as well. So I think there is a, a, um, a need for the digital wallet, like even in app purchases, right? You don't need to type in your credit card number. You can just use the Apple Pay, you know, uh, function or Google Pay, depending on your device. So I think that would be, you know, some of the use cases as to why it's being so popular. Like I said, it's not for everybody because I don't think everybody, like people these days, like I hate using debit cards. Um, and there are people who won't even use cards to buy a, you know, a stick of gum, right? I mean, I would. But there are, so I think it's I think just mobility. Like, I think mobility is a bit the, the big one, Pedro. Like I think to be able to open up your MasterCard on your phone and just pay like that is a, is the use case to me for the wallet as opposed to because when I'm in app for instance or I'm, I'm making a purchase on on the mobile web my, my Apple my iPhone already has my credit card number in there so like it remembers it I've asked it to remember it for the convenience factor it's remembering it and all I have to do is face it's you know now it sinks to my face and <laughs> like you know like but it's in it's instantaneous so i think like the real value to me on the wallet is or why apple did it even though you have to use your credit card which is great job security for credit card companies that you're still you're still you know it's still backstopped by the credit card right is that just you know boom i'm paying right there with my phone and i think it'll probably take off it just it's just a matter of like what's the right what's the right app to deploy that in i look at like developing economies like economies in africa asia south america and how they've moved away from banks altogether like like tremendously like in africa specifically like tremendously large unbanked populations that use like whatsapp and other mechanisms to like not only make payments but get paid like their, their salaries 
And so one of the things that I think about is like one of the built-in requirements for using your phone as a payment system is like access to electricity and phone signal. And like some of the most vulnerable communities on earth don't have access to either or both consistently, right? And so it's something I think about in the idea of like, ah, we're just gonna go fully digital and like forget paper, I mean, uh, paper money and forget, uh, you know, plastic credit cards. Well, listen, I can pay with my plastic credit card if my phone's dead or I don't have access to a smartphone and I obviously can use cash. Um, and so like, it's just, I think there's like room for all of it, I guess is my point. And part of this whole thing is like making sure, in my opinion, that credit card companies and all of these new payment processors Make sure that they create like offline mechanisms for people to exercise their economic power um, or else we're, we'll leave people behind. No, no, I agree. I agree. I think, you know, it's interesting you mentioned India because they skipped this whole credit yeah. card phase, right? I mean, they went to the mobile phones, right? I mean, you tell me, I, I, I start freaking out when I realize that my phone is about to die. <laughs> like I'm always having it charged, right? So but yeah, not everybody has access to that kind of technology or not, but um. But it was like India was a very uh, sort of like a lesson learned for us because it skipped such a whole like step that we were used to going through. And then we had to work with the, you know, mobile network operators there to make sure that those people were not excluded exactly. from the conveniences. Exactly. And then there's also the issue of like emergencies, right? Like I grew up in South Florida and there's like a hurricane in South Florida every 11 minutes. But I remember Hurricane Andrew which devastated my community. There was, we didn't have electricity for 60 some odd days, right? And then when we got it back, we didn't have a house to put electricity in, right? And so if that happened in a world where all these payments and all this stuff is happening here, well, there's no cell phone towers now because they blew away and there's no electricity to charge your phone. How is this gonna work? And so that's why I think like, there's always gonna be a place for analog, whether that's credit cards themselves, which also sort of don't work in emergencies or cash, like, I just don't think we're going to a place where, like, this is, like, just going to replace everything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I agree. Look, if you don't have electricity, I don't think you can swipe a card. So <laughs> there's no communication going back and forth. You have to do one of those carbon copy things. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. we'll end here on the carbon copy because we've really come full circle. Carbon copy. <laughs> Awesome. Well, hey, Judy, thanks for talking with us. Uh, awesome. Time. Awesome to talk thanks, to Fred. It was fun. Thank you very much for yeah. having me. Appreciate Please. it. Oh, Mastercard, I said thanks for giving me that $250 credit <laughs> line. I <Yeah>. will. <laughs> All right. Okay, have a good one, guys. Bye. Bye.